What I'd like to do this morning is to once again bring you a message from the Word of God. And the message that we will be focusing on this morning, I think in one sense, is a very, a very needed message. In one sense, it's a very practical message. Now, we can make a case that all the Word of God is practical. We would certainly never want to find ourselves saying, well, that's really not practical. All the Word of God is very, very practical. Oftentimes, it takes a little bit of skill as to how we apply the Word of God to find it to be as practical as it is intended to be in the Word of God. But what I want to do this morning is look at a passage of Scripture that will give to us uh, insight into the way in which our lives are to be lived. We read from the book of Psalms this morning, Psalm 1, where we were warned not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. I think it's a passage of scripture that many of us are familiar with it. Uh, Hopefully many of us have memorized it. But what I want to do this morning is I want to take a look at a passage of scripture that I think illustrates in a negative way, if I can put it that way, what the psalmist is warning us against. And that is against walking in the counsel of the ungodly. So I want to ask you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 22. 2 Chronicles chapter 22 And we will read together verses 1 through 9. And what we will see in this passage of Scripture is we will learn a lesson from a king who walked in the counsel of the ungodly. Now again, it's a very wonderful thing to have this kind of an illustration set before us. It's one thing to be warned not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. It's another thing to have set before us in the Word of God the example of a man who walked in the counsel of the ungodly. And what I hope to do this morning is to set before you a number of points of what ungodly counsel consists of. In one sense, this sermon will all be about the nature of ungodly counsel. And so we'll take a look at that. But again, first, let us read from Second Chronicles chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the King James. It'll be a little different than your uh, English Standard Version. 2 Chronicles chapter 22. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his stead. For the band of men that came up with the Arabians to the camp had slain all the eldest. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Forty and two years old was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, For his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Wherefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Ahab. For they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He walked also after their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians smote Joram, and he returned to be healed in Jezreel because of the wounds which were given him at Ramoth. And he fought when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Azariah, the son of Jehoram, the king of Judah, went down to see Jehoram and the son of Ahab at Jezreel because he was sick. And the destruction of Ahaziah was of God by coming to Joram. For when he was come, he went out with Joram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. And it came to pass that when Jehu was executing judgment upon the house of Ahab, he found the princes of Judah and the sons and the brethren of Ahaziah that ministered unto Ahaziah, and he slew them. And he sought Ahaziah, and they caught him, for he was hid in Samaria, and he brought him to Jehu. 
And when they had slain him, they buried him, because, said they, he is the son of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all of his heart. So the house of Ahaziah had no power to keep still the kingdom. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are here gathered gathered as your people, seeking instruction from your word. And so, Father, I would ask, Father, that you would give to me grace to convey the truth of your word, and that you would grant unto your people, Father, both open hearts and willing hearts to do all that we are instructed from your word this morning. Let all of our intentions this day be to glorify you in obedience to your word. So grant this, we ask, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, what we see in this passage of Scripture is, on one level, something of a confusing account. And it's a confusing account because we are introduced to a number of names in a very short, in a very short span, names that we may or may not be familiar with. We are also confronted with a situation that, if I can put it this way, is happening on the ground at that time, where the political situation between Israel as a kingdom and Judah as a kingdom are becoming very closely intertwined, and we are also finding at at this certain time where there is a sense in which they are both losing influence and power. And what we're going to see is that in a certain allegiance between the kings of these two kingdoms, Ahaziah of Judah and Joram of Israel, there is a coming together in a way that really leads to the destruction of this man Ahaziah because of his following wicked and ungodly counsel. So what I want to do this morning is, I want to, as I said earlier, I want to set before you this reality of ungodly counsel, what it is. What is its nature? What does it look like? How should we avoid it? And what is the end of such counsel? And in that regard, if I can say this to you, this particular message, I think, will be very helpful to each and every one of us. If I can address those of you who are younger here, it will be particularly helpful to you because it will help you to discern voices that you're hearing at this present time. Voices by way of instruction and advice that will help you to steer and navigate through this world to the glory of God and to the good of your own souls. And for those of us who are older, we still need to be careful that we are not swayed by ungodly counsel. And so again, we'll take a look at this passage of Scripture uh, along these lines. Well, the first thing that I want to do this morning, if you'll allow me, is just spend a few minutes in introduction and trying to deal with some of the particulars in this passage of Scripture. As I said before, what we are, where we are at by way of Israel's history is we are at a particular point in time where David's reign has now ended for about 150 years. Uh, the kingdom of David had passed to his son Solomon. David, again, was the king par excellence, we might say. David was a true picture of what a righteous king should be. Solomon had much promise, and Solomon had done many things that were commendable, but sadly, Solomon had particular sins that not only affected him, but he had particular sins that brought about a destruction to the unity of the nation. The division of the nation of Israel or the kingdom of Israel all came about by way of the judgment of God upon the sins of Solomon. Solomon, not only in the fact that he had these many wives, but these wives led him in to forms of idolatry. And God judged the nation because of that. And what we see during the split of this nation 
is that the is that the uh, ten tribes uh, depart from David, Judah and Benjamin stay faithful to David's descendants. Now, what happens very early in this division, and this becomes very important in our understanding the history of these two kingdoms. What happens very early in the ki- in the in the division of this kingdom is the king who goes who makes the split, King uh, Jero- uh, King Jeroboam. He enters into counsel with foolish men. And these foolish men, these ungodly men really, counsel him to set up a form of religion that is not completely divorced from the worship of the true God, but takes the form in which God is very much displeased. In a sense, we can sum it up like this. The northern kingdom is worshiping the true God under false forms. And believe it or not, those of you who know your Old Testament, you've heard this passage of scripture said over and over again. He walked in the sins of his father Jeroboam. As a matter of fact, I think every one of the northern kings, that kind of summary is made about them. They walked in the sins of Jeroboam. What were the sins of Jeroboam? I'm sure there were many personal sins by way of morality and moral choices that he made, but primarily the sin of Jeroboam was the worship of the true God in a false way. That is almost hard for us to fathom in our day. When one of the things that we kind of embrace is, well, you can worship God any way you want. Well, whatever the 21st century says, that's not what God says in his word. There's a right and proper way to worship God. Now, again, let me say this. We are very blessed in the fact that the proper worship of God has been made very clear and manifest to us and that the proper worship of God is all given to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Your worship is acceptable to God, is acceptable to God because it goes to God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. God's blessings come to you through the mediation of Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful thing to know that even with all of our faults and blemishes in this hour of worship, there is a sense in which the Lord Jesus Christ in his office of mediator mediates the worship that we offer to God the Father. And he perfects our, our failed and our failing worship, our halting worship, our stammering tongues. And he takes our worship and he makes them, and he makes it pleasing in the sight of God. So we have a, we have a, a this, and again, this is one of the blessings of living in this gospel age. This is one of the blessings that we have, having the clear light of the gospel upon us. We learned last week that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and he is the light not only of the world, he is a light to the church as well. And in all this thought, we can come together and understand that all these questions that come up about true and false worship, in one sense, I don't want to say that we set it aside, we do not. But they are alleviated because we know that when we offer our worship to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, our worship is acceptable in the sight of God. Thank God for his son. Thank God for the mediation of Jesus Christ. Thank God that your worship extends to God the Father. Our worship extends to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. But this was the sin of Jeroboam. It's an amazing thing. And I'll be very honest with you. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in the process of, of preaching a, a series of sermons on the, on the kings of Israel and Judah. And I haven't come to a full grasp of just the depth or the complete nature of the sin of Jeroboam. Other than the fact that it's very clear that what he does is he attempts to worship the true God under a false form. So again, we'll leave that aside for now. Anyway, so you have this division taking place. Now, what else is going on at this time is that in the northern kingdom, there is never a descendant of David. 
who was on the throne. You have a number of different dynasties being developed where men of great ability and men of great power come to the throne. Just an interesting observation, if, I, if you'll allow me to make it, that when the kingdom divides, there is the king to the north, Jeroboam. There is the king to the south, Rehoboam. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. When you look at these two men as men, Jeroboam is probably the more qualified man, we might say. He's probably a man of greater ability than Rehoboam is. But Rehoboam stands in the line of David. And God's covenant promises to the nation go through David. And there is a sense in which the blessings of God are all designed to go through the covenant head of David. And so that descent from David becomes vital. Our enjoyment of the mediation of Christ in the, offer, in the worship that we offer to God this morning is all bound up in that Davidic line. It is the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of David. It is the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilling all the messianic promises given to David that enables us to gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and and, and offer acceptable worship to God. But now what's happening here at the time that we find ourselves, again, Ahaziah is about 150 years after the division of the king, uh, after the, uh, the reign of David. What's happening now is this. The division that had taken place sometime prior is now slowly over a course of time beginning to be healed. And there are political and cultural reasons or pressures that are bringing these two kingdoms in close proximity with one another. And what begins to happen is that through a series of different kings, political marriages are arranged. Political marriages are not only arranged between Israel and Judah, But there is also a political marriage that is arranged between the nation or the kingdom of Tyre and Israel. And it's through that arranged marriage from Tyre and Israel that the infamous woman Jezebel is introduced into the scene. Jezebel comes by way of political marriage from the kingdom of Tyre into the kingdom of Israel. And it's through the marriage of Jezebel to Ahab that we have many of our most memorable accounts of Scripture, don't we? Very, very few. If, and again, if you'll allow me to use this, this little illustration, I was, I was uh, doing a job a while, uh, a while back. You know, I was in somebody's house you know, uh, doing a job, and, and somehow church came up, and somehow the gospel came up. And, and so I was, you know, explaining... To, to, to my customer about uh, you know about the, the about the gospel and happened to tell her at the time I was happened to be preaching on Ahab and I mentioned the name Ahab she wasn't too familiar with Ahab but when I mentioned the name Jezebel she knew who Jezebel was and so the idea is that there she is this very infamous woman but she comes to the nation of Israel not as a product of Israel but by way of a political marriage. And what she does is she introduces now in a full-blown measure, not just the worship of the true God in a false form, she introduces full-blown idolatry. And the worship of Baal now becomes the established religion in the land. Now, from Ahab and Jezebel, a daughter is born. And that daughter's name is Athaliah. 
And now through the political marriage of Israel and Judah, a good king by the name of Jehoshaphat, one of the top kings in Israel, makes a foolish decision to allow his children to enter into political marriage with Israel. And lo and behold, guess who gets married off into Judah? It is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, a woman by the name again of Athaliah. She now is queen in Judah. And in the process of time, what she does is she begins to establish the worship of Baal, not as the singular religion in Judah, but as the primary religion in Judah. I hope your mind just spun when I said that. Because to think that in the land of Judah, there would be the formal worship of Baal taking place. You have to understand how far this nation has fallen into sin. You have to understand how far from the purpose of God these people have gone. Now, the other thing I want you to remember what I said earlier. There was never a time in the divided kingdom when these two kingdoms were closer. They were very close politically. They were close culturally. But they were never further away from God than at this time. Now, that's going to play a very significant role in us understanding what this council of the ungodly is all about as we're going to take a look at it in in a few minutes. The other thing you have to understand, this woman, Athaliah, just absolutely wicked. She is probably the only one who can possibly compete with her by way of wickedness in the word of God is her mother, Jezebel. These two women, they were just flat out wicked. I could say more, but they were just, they were, they were just absolutely bad news for the people of God. And so what I want you to see and understand is this. When Athaliah comes into the kingdom, she marries Jehoshaphat's son. Now, this man that we're going to look at, this man Ahaziah, that's, that's Athaliah's son. And when, when we get to the end of the account of Ahaziah, and when Ahaziah is put to death by Jehu, under the judgment of God, when Ahaziah is put to death, guess what old scheming, crafty Athaliah does? She searches out the remaining sons, the remaining descendants of David, and has them all killed except one. Do you understand what's happening now? Do you know that at this moment in biblical history, all the promises of God are literally hanging on a thread? Every benefit and blessing that you and I enjoy right now, if we were living in that moment of time, we would probably say, could it ever be that God will raise up a son? Could it ever be that God will have his Messiah sitting on his throne? And so again, Athaliah, this murderous woman, destroying her own grandchildren, all in an attempt to completely gain power for herself. But there was that one little child, that one little baby whisked away. And it's through that baby that the Davidic line continues. It's through that little baby that the Lord Jesus Christ finally comes to you and to me. So again, all these things are going on. Internationally, all kind of battles are going on. 
Internationally, Syria is being uh, developed as the dominant power in the area. That's why we read, we read of the fact that when Ahaziah went to, to the north to visit Joram, he was recovering from the wounds that he had experienced in the battle. All kinds of things are going on. Politically, things are going on. Culturally, things are going on. Religiously, things are going on. So all I'm trying to say is this. This council of the ungodly is taking place in an environment that's very much like our own. A day where there is a moral turning over of all the, the foundational realities of what we know to be right. A day in which, in which there is all this international turmoil taking place. In other words, it's a day like any other day. A day when the word of God is always relevant, if I can put it to you that way. And so what we see here, again, are all these things setting the stage for us. Now, what I want to do here is I want to get into this passage of scripture and I want to look at some of the things that we see by way of what we can learn concerning the nature of ungodly counsel. And the first thing that I want to to ask you to do is just look with me with verse 1 here. And again, I'll read the verse and then we'll make some comments on it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Ahaziah his youngest son king in his stead. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had slain all the eldest. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned in his stead. Now, all I want to say from this passage of scripture is essentially this. When it comes to the council of the ungodly, understand this, that the council of the ungodly often finds its place in the highest places of human government. That the counsel of the ungodly does not just affect our children. That the counsel of the ungodly does not just impinge upon the way you and I think or the evaluations that we make. That oftentimes the counsel of the ungodly finds itself in the highest places of government. And here in this particular situation, here was Ahaziah, king of Judah. And what do we see happening? We see this man, or we will shortly find this man, under the counsel of the ungodly. Well... We really have to do a little bit more of an explanation here before we, we get back to the text. And the explanation would be this. What is the counsel of the ungodly? And again, we ask an even more general question. What is counsel? Well, I think in one sense we really don't need to explain this. I think most of us understand by counsel what we mean is essentially advice, instruction, direction on some particular course. You know what it is to seek counsel. You know what it is to seek advice. You know what it is when you need advice. And so again, advice or counsel is that instruction or direction on a particular path. And that particular path oftentimes comes from various sources. And what we're going to see in the Word of God is that when it's all said and done, and you know how the Bible can be very black and white, the Bible is going to say that there is godly counsel and ungodly counsel. There is counsel to be followed and counsel not to be followed. We like to see it a little bit more gray. But at the end of the day, God says, look, there's godly counsel and there's ungodly counsel. Learn to discern between the two and learn to choose the godly counsel. So what I want you to see and understand then, again, counsel is any kind of device, any kind of uh, instruction, any kind of dire- direction given on a certain course of action that we should take. Now, Whenever we talk about ungodly counsel, what is it that distinguishes or what is it that makes counsel ungodly? Well, when it's all said and done, ungodly counsel is that counsel that comes from individuals or from from uh, sources of authority or from power structures that are essentially contrary to the revealed will of God. It is that counsel that runs counter to the will of God. It is that counsel that runs contrary to God. It is that counsel that comes from people like we see in Psalm 36 whose thoughts are not after the ways of God. Just go to Psalm 36 very quick. And I just want to give you just a quick overview of what we see here by way of some of the, some of the aspects of ungodly counsel. In uh, Psalm 36, 
We read this. The transgression of the wicked saith within my heart, there is no fear of God before his eyes. Well, right there you know. Any counsel you get from somebody who has no fear of God, well, you're getting ungodly counsel. And that ungodly counsel may seem to be very wise. It may seem to be very appropriate. It may seem to be the right thing for the moment. But you have to ask yourself and evaluate. Is the counsel that you're getting... Is it coming from somebody who has no fear of God, no reverence for God, no respect of God? We see in Psalm 10, I think it is Psalm 10, verse 4, or verse 14, it's where the psalmist says that God is not in all their thoughts. Well, we know people like this, don't we? That the reality of who God is never enters into their thinking. And so what the scriptures are warning us against is counsel from that kind of a source. Look here, again, um, Look here at, um, at verse 4 of Psalm 36. He devises mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good. He, he abhors not evil. Well, again, this is the source of ungodly counsel. And I think in our day, if I can say this, I think in our day, one of the things that we really have to listen to, it's Psalm 36, verse 4, the thing that we really have to listen to is that last thing that's being said. He abhors not evil. Well, the King James says abhors. You know what it means in our common tongue. This man doesn't hate evil. And I think one of the challenges to the church of Jesus Christ in our day is the challenge whether or not we will maintain a hatred for that which God hates. You see, in our day, the, the, great, the great word in our day is love. The great pushback on any kind of emphasis the scripture makes is what about love? And what about love? Hey, let's preach up love as much as we can. Let's thank God for it. Again, I've said in, in, in numerous settings, I'm so glad that, we, that the shorthand verse of the Bible is John 3.16. But John 3.16 does not put a muzzle on the rest of the scripture. And here we see that there must be within the heart of the righteous there must be within the heart of the people of God the ability to say evil will be despised. And if you want to prove the reality of how true that is, when you, when, when you observe somebody who you are in a very kind and loving way saying, I will not lose the ability and I, fit, and I, and I refuse to be influenced by anybody who is going to try to move me away from the hatred of that which is evil. And when you say that in a very kind and Christian way, and I'm not saying that to make a joke, I mean it sincerely, in a very kind and loving way, you watch the response that they have towards you. And I think we hear things like this, well, I'll tolerate anything but intolerance. In other words, there's a certain prioritizing of things here, isn't there? And if I can be so blunt and so bold, God gets to set the priority. Amen. And when he says that evil is to be hated, yes, evil is to be hated. Aren't you glad that our warfare isn't against flesh and blood? We're not grabbing people by the throat and, 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 and throwing them in the mud and, 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 and physically overwhelming them. We're simply holding forth the word of truth. Do to us what you will. Do to me what you will. But by the grace of God, you need to hear that God hates sin. He loves you, by the way. But your sin is a stench in his nostrils. And he will judge you for your sin. 
And should you feel it your right to, to stifle me or should you feel right to put me to death, understand God will judge you for that. But there's forgiveness even after you. There's forgiveness for you. You see, you emphasize and prioritize the gospel, but you never get moved away from what the gospel teaches or the background or the context of the gospel. Why do I say that? Well, in our day, to speak out against sin is to be accused of not loving. As though, as though love now has been taken out of the domain of, of, of God and now been put in the hands of man. And we live in a day, it's a strange day, isn't it? We, we actually encounter people who think that they have a better morality than God. They think they're more moral than God. And much of this is the source of ungodly counsel that we encounter in our day. And oftentimes, this ungodly counsel is used to silence the church. Oftentimes, this ungodly counsel comes from the church. It comes from pulpits just like this. Pulpits just like this. Men get up and have, have no concept of what the word of God is teaching. And all they're doing is voicing what the world is saying. They're an echo chamber for the world. You don't want this pulpit to be an echo chamber for the world. I'm sorry. You want this pulpit, by the grace of God, to be declaring what the word of God has to say. And so again, this is what the flavor, this is what the nature of ungodly counsel is. Now we have a very clear illustration of ungodly counsel in one sense. The very first illustration that we have of ungodly counsel sets the pattern for all ungodly counsel after that. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Genesis chapter 3. There we see Eve giving heed to the counsel of Satan. What a, what, a, what, a, what a phrase that is, right? The counsel of Satan. Whoever wants to give themselves over to the counsel of Satan, nobody wants to do that. But again, when we give ourselves over to the counsel of the ungodly, it's very much like it. And so here what we see is we see something of this pattern that we, shouldn't, that we, should, not, um, that we should not overlook. Number one, and we'll, we'll not turn, turn to the passage of Scripture. I think you're familiar with it. Number one, we know that the Scripture says that the serpent was more subtle. Uh, the, some of our newer translations say he was more crafty than any beast of the field. And what I want you to understand and, 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 and realize is this, is that ungodly counsel is very rarely, sometimes it, 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 it may be this way, but ungodly counsel is very rarely just so wrong on its face that you're going to look at somebody and say, are you, you know, seriously? That's usually not going to be the case. Usually what's going to be the case is there's going to be this subtlety to it. Usually there's going to be this appropriateness to it. Usually there's going to be this immediate benefit to it that's going to seem to be the right thing to do in the moment. And so when we see Satan as the most crafty beast of the field, let's not, let's not overlook the fact that much of ungodly counsel is going to be very subtle and very crafty. Secondly, and I think you know the, the pattern that Satan uses. You, you, you know these things. I'm sure this is not the, going to be the first time that you heard this. You know how that he casts uh, doubt concerning the word of God. You know the, how, that he, how he distorts the word of God. And then you know how that he denies the word of God. Well, those elements are all going to be involved in ungodly counsel. Again, there's going to be this idea where, uh, where, where doubt is cast upon the word of God. And again, we can see this, and we can think of this in, in, in so many different ways. I don't think we live in that day so much anymore. Now, be patient with me. I don't think we live in that day so much anymore. Believe it or not, culturally, historically, I think that day was maybe two or three generations ago. See, we're downstream from that. I don't even know that we're in the day of distortion of the Word of God anymore. We're in the day of flat-out denial of the Word of God now. And did you notice when Satan, when Satan uh, 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 doubted, distorted, and denied, do you know what ultimately he was doing? He was casting aspersion on the nature of God, wasn't he? 
People are so bold to speak, not against the word of God anymore, not even against the people of God. They're bold to speak against God himself. And so this, again, just formulates what the nature of ungodly counsel uh, can be. So, having said all that, what I, want to, what I want you to do with me once again is to come back to 2 Chronicles 22 here. And, and as I said, the first point that we, that, that we made is that the counsel of the ungodly uh, oftentimes finds, its, finds itself in the highest places of human authority. The next thing that I want you to see uh, with me is that the counsel of the ungodly is very oftentimes a manifestation of an inner wickedness on the part of the one giving the counsel. Now, this is kind of a bold statement, and again, this this could be somewhat uh, uh, this could be viewed somewhat as as uncharitable, uh, because many times we might receive ungodly counsel from people who, in many ways, have our best uh, intentions in mind. But what I want you to see from this passage of scripture, and what we saw in the book of Genesis as well, that oftentimes ungodly counsel is only revealing an ungodly nature. And the reason why I say that is again because of this woman Athaliah. Look, let's look here in. Um, Let's, let's look here at verses 2 and 3. 40 and 2 years, the ESV says 22 years, and we can talk about that in a minute. Uh, 42 years was Ahaziah when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. And his mother's name also was Athaliah, the daughter of Omri. Well, what I want you to see from that is that this, as I said earlier, this woman Athaliah, as I said before, she is really the, the, only, the only competitor that she has by way of wickedness in the Bible is her mother Jezebel. If Jezebel was not so well known, Athaliah would be the one who's primarily known. As I said before, this is a woman who destroyed her own grandchildren. This is a woman who was wicked in every sense of the word. This is a woman who, by, and, what I, and see, and I want to be careful here. Because I don't want you to just think that Athaliah was a complete ogre. That Athaliah was just somebody you would look at walking down the street and think, what in the world's up with, with that woman? What I want you to see and understand that Athaliah was probably very much like Women, if you allow, ladies, if you allow me, very much like, like all of you. I, I have every reason to believe that when little Ahaziah, her son, was born, I don't doubt that she loved it when Ahaziah was held next to her breast and when she was nursing little Ahaziah. I don't doubt it if she would put her nose down on his, on his little head and smell that little, all that fresh skin. You know what it's like. I don't doubt that whatsoever. I don't doubt at all that she enjoyed seeing Ahaziah grow up. But at the end of the day, this woman was a moral monster. And it comes to fruition when she gets the opportunity. I'll never forget reading one Puritan. I can't remember who it was. But he says this about sin. This is not so much dealing with ungodly counsel, although ungodly counsel is sin, but it's dealing with sin generically. He says, always beware when temptation and opportunity meet together. Because when temptation without opportunity comes up, you've got a good chance of fighting it. When opportunity is there and you're not tempted in the moment, you've got a good chance of fighting it. But when temptation and opportunity come together, brothers and sisters, beware. And when the opportunity and the temptation came up for Athaliah to finally gain the throne, for Athaliah now to be able to show to her mother, or at least in her mother's marriage, her mother is still alive at this time, to be able to show to her mother, Mom, look what I've done. I've now been able to introduce in a very formal way Baalism in Judah. I've now been able to take the God of our fathers and raise them up in this land. When opportunity and temptation came together, Athaliah jumped on it. And so as I said before, what we're seeing by way of ungodly counsel is that ungodly counsel often comes from those whose very nature is represented by that ungodly counsel. Once again, we go back to Genesis 3. 
any more wicked than Satan himself. Where does that ungodly counsel come from? It comes from his very nature. I think if we go back to Psalm 1, we can see the same thing. Blessed is the man who walks not on the counsel of the ungodly, ESV the wicked, nor stands in the seat of sinners, nor, 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 nor sits in the seat of the scornful. What do we see there? Ungodly sinners, wicked, excuse me, ungodly sinners and scornful. And in other words, these, this, this counsel reflects their character. This counsel reflects their nature. And if ungodly counsel reflects the nature of ungodly men and women, what are our godly counsel reflect to those who seek the counsel of God from us? You see, we ought to have such a grasp of the word of God, such an embrace of the truth of Scripture, that when, the pe- that when people come to us asking advice and instruction, we can give to them, if I can be so bold, we can give to them a clear word from heaven. Look, I know that's what your friends are saying to you. I know what that's, that, that, I understand that's what the world says. But this is what God says. Oh, that, li- that, 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 that little powerful phrase, the Bible says. The Bible says. On many ears, it clangs. But on the ears of the people of God, and even on the ears of those who God is calling, there is something of a magnetism there that says, this is what God says. This is what I have to obey. So again, the counsel of the ungodly not only comes, not only finds itself in the highest places of human authority, but it also uh, finds, it, but it also secondly reveals, as I said before, an inner wickedness. Now again, this inner wickedness, when we talk about, uh, we've already talked about Satan, but just to give you another passage of scripture that uh, would confirm this to you, you remember what our Lord Jesus Christ says in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he's dealing with the Pharisees. He says, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh, he, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of What's he saying? He's saying that it's in the very nature of Satan to lie. This is what I'm trying to say by way of what ungodly counsel is. It's in the very nature of ungodly people to give ungodly counsel. When we come to our applications, we'll deal with some of these things because I, I, I do want to be able to make this as useful for you as I can, but you have to understand when you come to this situation, you need to know and understand that ungodly men and women can only give ungodly counsel. The one who has God not in all of his thoughts, he's not going to be able to give you godly counsel. Now, he may be able to be a very skilled technician. You may be, I don't know, I'm picking it out of the top of my head, you may be in the medical profession, and maybe your chief nurse is one of the most despicable people that you might know, but she may be just a crackerjack at what she does. And she may be able to help you in a certain situation, but, but counsel for life? We'll keep it at nine to five. And when it comes to the real matters, I'm depending on, again, my brother or sister in Christ. And so again, this ungodly counsel, again, uh, oftentimes springs up from the very course of, uh, of the nature. The third thing I want you to see about ungodly counsel, again, is taken from verse three. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Now, this is, this, this is meant to shock us. It really is. It's meant to shock us, for his mother was his counselor to do wickedly. Now, again, sadly, we, don't, we wouldn't be too surprised if it said his father was the one who led him in the wickedness. We see that all around us. 
But the scripture seems to be emphasizing the fact that all that a mother ought to be and all that a mother called to be is exactly what this woman Athali is not. She was the one who was her counselor. And he, she was the one who was his counselor in wickedness. And what I want you to see by that is this. Thirdly, that ungodly counsel can at times come from those who are nearest and closest to us. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? Here was this woman, Athaliah, who should have been, again, that, that, that great moral guidance in the, light, in the life of that young king, Ahaziah. But instead, she was his counselor to do evil and to do wickedness. And so what I want you to see and what I want you to understand is that ungodly counsel can come from those who are very, very close to us. I have to be careful here. We have family members, don't we? who we are praying for, who we want to come to faith in Jesus Christ, who have our best interest in mind. You may have brothers and sisters who are not converted, but who genuinely love you. You may have aunts and uncles who are not converted, but will do anything for you to pick up, all you gotta do is pick up a phone. And they love you. And I'm not denying that at all. But I am warning you, based on the word of God, that ungodly counsel can come from those who are closest to us that we must be very, very careful to learn to discern between godly and ungodly counsel. And we, again, we mean no disrespect to those who have our best interests, those who would be very open and loving to us. We have no disrespect for them at all. We would love them as, to, to the full extent of as the gospel calls us to love them. But when it comes to this idea of counsel, counsel is to be reserved for the wise and for the godly. Counsel is to be reserved for the word of God. That's why God says, take counsel of me. One of the most beautiful one of the most beautiful pictures that we have of this idea of counsel is essentially this, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the wonderful counselor and that the Lord Jesus Christ counsels us from out of his word. It's a beautiful thing. And so that's what we look for, again, when we are, when we are seeking counsel. But again, that third point, that the counsel of the ungodly, again, often comes from those who are closest to us. Now, we see this with Athali. There's another illustration that we have in this. You may, not, you may or may not remember this story from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, David had a number of sons. You remember that. One of his sons was, was a man by the name of Ammon. Uh, and Ammon had a, a friend who was actually a cousin, Jonadab. And Ammon had this, uh, this, this infatuation, uh, this crush on uh, one of his half-sisters, a, a sister from another of David's wives. We get into all that. It's like, well, what's, you know, how does that all work out? But let's, let's stay with, with where we're going right now. So Ammon has this crush on his half-sister, Tamar. And Jonadab, his cousin, his friend, says to Ammon, he says, what are you so upset about? Why are you, why are you walking around in such a, such a despondent way? And he says, well, I have, you know, this, 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 he calls it love. I preached a sermon on that passage of scripture, and I entitled it, when lust, describes its, when lust Disguises Itself as Love. That's what's happening there. He doesn't have any love for this girl. He's, he's, he's lusting after her. And so Jonadab says, by way of his counsel, listen to what he says here in, uh, in, in 2 Samuel 13, verses 3 through 5. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very subtle man. Have we heard that before? Verse 4. And he said unto him, Why art thou, being the king's son, lean from day to day? Wilt thou not tell me? And Ammon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister's wife. And Jonadab said unto him, Here's the counsel. What's counsel? Counsel is advice, instruction, direction on any course of on any, on any uh, intended course of action. And Jonadab said, Jonadab said unto him, 
Lay thee down on a bed and make thyself sick. And when thy father cometh to see thee, say unto him, I pray thee, let my sister Tamar come and give me meat and dress the meat in my sight that I may eat it and eat of her hand. Well, there was the counsel of the ungodly. There was the counsel of a wicked man. There was the counsel of a subtle man. And Ammon took this counsel, and very shortly after that, a great crime is committed in Israel. Tamar, in the name of so-called love, is raped. Absalom, being the man that he is, would not at all sit still with this. And when it's all said and done, Ammon loses his life because of the counsel of an ungodly friend. There are repercussions from ungodly counsel. And that's going to come back in our passage of Scripture here. So again, the counsel of the ungodly often comes from those who are closest to us. Third, uh, fourthly, what I want you to see is this, is that the counsel of the ungodly often comes from those with great influence. Now this is something, again, I think that might affect those of us who are older, maybe more than those of us who are younger. That the counsel of the ungodly can oftentimes come from those who have great influence. And why do I say that? Well, let's look here again at verse 4. Wherefore he did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen to this, like the house of Ahab. For they were his counselors after his death, to, uh, uh, after the death of his father, to his destruction, like the house of Ahab. What I want you to understand at this point in, in, in the history of the divided kingdoms, when we think of Israel and we think of Judah, I think by way of default, we always think Judah. They're, you know, they're, the, they're the better ones. They're, they're the good ones. They're the more important ones. They're the more significant ones. And in one sense, in the, in the eyes of God, that's true. Not that they don't sin, not that they don't fail. But we, you know, we have a default way of thinking, well, well Judah's better off. You know? We hear things like this. There was never a good king in the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Judah probably had about maybe six or eight good kings. And so we think, well, Judah's the better kingdom. But what's interesting historically at this point is that, is that economically, culturally, militarily, Israel is the more significant power. It's very interesting how this works out geographically. Israel has kind of access to all these trade routes. Judah is kind of like locked in inside of Israel next to the Dead Sea there. It's kind of like locked in by itself. And so there's not much that it has by way of commercial power. There's also, because of the influence of all of these, uh, of all of these trade routes, there's a lot of outside influence that comes into the kingdom of Israel that makes it what I like to call something of a cosmopolitan kingdom. There's something of, a, of an up-to-date flair with the kingdom of Israel that the kingdom of Judah doesn't necessarily have. And so culturally, economically, uh, politically, and even militarily, Israel is the greater power at this time. What's interesting is when you look again in this secular history, you can even see how that the first, how that Ahab's, uh, I believe he's his, either his grandfather or his great-grandfather, a gentleman by the name of Omri. Omri is the name that the dynasty is, is identified by. So you have a king, Omri, then you have Baasha, who was, a very, who was another influential king. Uh, then you have Ahab, and then you have, uh, uh, after, uh, uh, and then Ahab is put to death. There's a, there's a fourth king in there somewhere, I, I forget his name. But the idea is that these four kings are all subsumed under the name of Omri. It's the Omri dynasty. And so culturally, uh, politically, economically, they were the greater power. Why am I bringing that up? Because I want you to see and understand that oftentimes the counsel of the ungodly comes from those who we have esteem for. It comes from those who have great influence. And so when 
Excuse me, excuse me. So when Ahaziah is looking for counsel, he's not going to these kind of backwood counselors that he has down there in his kingdom. He's going to the more cosmopolitan counselors. He's going to those who have an awareness of what's going on in the world. And that, again, becomes something of a snare for us. Because are we not all prone to give over by way of mental assent to what the influential and powerful have to say? Isn't one of the greatest challenges for the individual Christian and for the church as well to be able to stand against the popular culture, to be able to stand against what the the people who, who this world says has wisdom, and many times they do have wisdom. It's very tough, it's very difficult sometimes to stand against that. But what I want you to hear and what I want you to understand is that that's the nature of ungodly counsel. Sometimes, sometimes ungodly counsel comes from those with great influence. Excuse me, great influence and great power in the present world in which we live. And that's what we're seeing here as well. So again, the, uh, the uh, ungodly counsel can find itself in the places of highest authority. Ungodly counsel can come from those who are closest to us. Ungodly counsel uh, can come from those with great influence. The fourth thing I want you to see here, though, is this, is that un- ungodly counsel, and this becomes very important now, this goes from, if I can put it this way, this, is, this goes from like kind of instruction to more like a personal application here. It's not, it's not a formal application of the text, but we're moving into that. And what I want you to see is that the text, makes it, the text makes it very clear to us that whatever the source of this ungodly counsel was, no matter how close it was by way of human relationship, no matter how influential it was by way of world standing, Ungodly counsel never removes the responsibility of the person who acts upon that ungodly counsel. Listen to what the text of Scripture says here in verses 3 through 5. And I'm going to emphasize what I want you to be aware of. 2 Chronicles 22, verses 3 through 5. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor to do evil. Wherefore, he did evil in the sight of the house, in the sight of the Lord, like the house of Abel, uh, Ahab, for they were his counselors after the death of his father to his destruction. He walked also after their counsel. What do we see happening here? That no matter where the source of ungodly counsel came from, no matter how influential it was, no matter how close it was by way of uh, blood relation, Ahaziah was still responsible for the actions that he committed in virtue of or because of that ungodly counsel. And what I'm trying to say to you is this. While there's a lot that we might say about, well, the ungodly counsel that I got here and the ungodly counsel, at the end of the day, it's you and I who either act or don't act on ungodly counsel. And I want you to see and hear and understand that God holds us accountable no matter where the source of ungodly action is coming from, ungodly counsel is coming from. Let me say one more thing about it. I'm going to say more things, but this comes to my mind now. It was the same thing with Adam and Eve, wasn't it? The ungodly counsel came from Satan himself. But Adam and Eve were involved in all the repercussions. And I want you to notice something else about ungodly counsel. Do you you remember... In the account in Genesis, there was Satan given all that ungodly counsel. And after Adam and Eve fall into sin, did you ever notice that Satan's nowhere to be found after that until God calls him on the spot to judge him? And that's the way it is with ungodly counselors. They counsel you in one way, and when you find yourself in hot water because of that counsel, they're nowhere to be found. You know where you see the clearest example of this? Remember Judas, after he realized that he had betrayed innocent blood, goes back into the temple, 
tries to give the money back, and he says, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Do you remember what the Pharisees said to him? What is that to us? See thou to it. What are you coming to me for? Not my issue. You're the one that did it. That's oftentimes the way ungodly counselors respond to us when we're in our hot water, even after we've, even after we've followed their ungodly counsel. And so we see how this ungodly counsel works. So again, ungodly counsel, fourthly, as I said before, never removes from us the responsibility before God that we have for our actions. But there's one more thing that I want you to see about this ungodly counsel. Look here at verse, uh, verses 6 through 9. And we'll just read verses 6 through 7. And he returned to be healed in Jezreel because of the wounds which were given him at Ramah when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. And Azariah, uh, the son of Jehoram, king of uh, Judah, went down to see Jehoram, the son of Ahab, at Jezreel because he was sick. Now listen to this verse 7. And the destruction of Ahaziah was of God by coming to Joram. For when he was come, he went out with Jehoram against Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to cut off the house of Ahab. What's happening here when it's all said and done? After Ahaziah followed the, the, the counsel of the ungodly, did you notice this? When Ahaziah followed the counsel of the ungodly, Ahaziah was judged with the ungodly. Can I put it more blunt? My brothers and sisters, my friends, if we run with the sinners, we will perish with the sinners. Amen. You understand? There is a sense in which the personal responsibility is never diminished because other men or women or friends or family members give us ungodly counsel. We are accountable for that. We are accountable for that counsel that we follow. And so what we see here that when it's all said and done, the counsel of the ungodly brings with it the destruction that shall come upon the ungodly. So here we have something about the nature of ungodly counsel. And it is, again, my hope and my prayer, two things here. Let me say this if I can. And again, we're kind of coming into application here now. You may or may not be aware that a very, very good way to, to distinguish between knowledge and wisdom is essentially this. That in one sense, knowledge is an accumulation of facts. It's, it's knowledge about things. Wisdom is always the application of those facts to their proper end. We can, we can draw the parallels in our work relationship, you know, in our, in our work uh, responsibilities, but even more so when it comes to biblical knowledge. Uh, again, there's a sense in which no person can have biblical wisdom apart from biblical knowledge. Um, no matter how spiritual they seem to be, you ever meet people that seem to be very spiritual, don't know much about the Bible, but they, they just seem to be real spiritual. They have this spiritual nature about them, so to speak. And I'm not saying that in a positive way. They just have this kind of uh, spiritual kind of thing uh, about them. And, um, but there can be no real spiritual wisdom apart from spiritual knowledge. But also let me say this, that all biblical knowledge to be spiritual wisdom must be applied so if I can say this, if I can suggest this to you, you've been given some knowledge about ungodly counsel. It only becomes wisdom when you and I apply it in the right way and keep away from the counsel of the ungodly. Now what's that going to look like? What's that going to look like, practically speaking? Does that mean that when the caller ID comes up and aunt so-and-so is calling and she ain't a Christian. I'm not answering the phone. It doesn't, it doesn't look like that. Again, on so-and-so, we love you dearly, and I mean that sincerely. Do not diminish the value of human love, even on the level of, at the unconverted. 
but enhance that love at the level of the gospel, you understand? So it's not necessarily going to look like this fact that, well, you know, we're not talking to anybody, we're not doing this, but it does mean that you and I listen and discern and evaluate and say, wait a minute, direction is, given, is being given here, instruction is being given here, advice is being given here, where is this all coming from? And you can, in a very Christ-like, in a very compassionate way, convey to those who love you a thankfulness for their advice, but at the same time a resolve to say, I will not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, even of those who I love, but I will walk in the light of the, law, of the Lord, and in his law will I meditate day and night. So my Christian friends, my brothers and sisters, the counsel of the ungodly, it's all around us. You're going to leave here today, you're going to turn on the radio, you're going to hear counsel of the ungodly. But when it comes to this counsel of the ungodly, obviously the, 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 the other side of the coin is the counsel of the, of the godly. And what is the counsel of the, of the godly? Well, the counsel of the, of the godly is simply this. It all comes back to the person of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? And it all comes back to the issue of our souls. And so what I would say to you, and if I can say that the counsel that I'm giving now, while it's blemished with my own personality and while it's failing and flawed and everything else, but the counsel of the word of God to your soul right now is to whatever your situation is, whatever your circumstances are, Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace him as Savior. Embrace him as Lord and be saved. You understand that the most important counsel that you can receive right now all revolves around Jesus Christ. He is the wonderful counselor. He counsels us from out of his word. And so whatever your situation is here, looking for counsel for the future, maybe some of you young ones, looking for counsel as how to finish out life, some of us older ones, looking for counsel maybe as to what to do with your sin, look to Jesus Christ and be saved. That is the counsel of the word of God. May we heed it and may we live by it. Let's pray.